You're listening to the Abra Money 3.0 show, your guide to the future of all things money. In this episode, Abra founder and CEO Bill Barhide talks to Kathy Wood, the CEO and Chief Investment Officer at ARC, a firm that specializes in investing in disruptive technologies. The conversation covers a lot of ground, including ARC's strategy of investing in ideas that have exponential growth potential, such as companies like Tesla and networks like Bitcoin. This podcast is powered by BlockWorks Group. For access to premier digital asset conferences and in-depth podcast content, visit them at blockworksgroup.io. Before jumping in, remember, the information presented in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and should not be used or construed as an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any of the financial assets discussed. Any opinions expressed herein are subject to change. Neither Abra nor any of the participants in this podcast make any representation as to the suitability or appropriateness of these financial assets for individual investors. And with that out of the way, on to the show. So good morning, Kathy. How are you today? Great, Bill. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you. I'm really excited to uh, get to talk to you. I've been a, a fan for quite a while. And, um, you know, I, this is something that uh, we've talked about doing. And like I said, I'm very excited to finally uh, finally get to get you on our our illustrious uh, Money 3.0 show. Yeah, well, uh, we are definitely aligned in terms of what we're trying to do uh, in terms of investing. Great. Hey, so um, I got a bunch of stuff I want to talk to you about, but let's um, let's kind of dig in just with your background. Um, I'm actually even fascinated by your background. So, so um, I understand you were um, educated with uh, Art Art Laffer. I, I just could you just for our listeners who probably aren't uh, you know economists by training, if you could just, just explain uh, your background and and some of the work you've done in, in, in economics, I think they'd be really fascinated by that. Oh, sure. Thank you. Uh, so I met Art Laffer at USC. Uh, he was in the business school there uh, trying to start what was what is called was called um, a supply side uh, economics program, really focused on the Austrian school of economics. And um, and uh, uh, I actually fell in love with uh, the topics he was covering. And uh, I guess I became a bit of a groupie. Anyway, he, uh, I wanted to learn from him. He introduced me to Capital Group on the, the West Coast. Uh, Capital um, is um, a, a wonderful institution, long-term research focus. And at that time, uh, this, uh, this will truly date me. I was uh, in college, so I was a junior. Uh, and uh, he introduced me to Capital, where I started working. And, uh, you know, it was an investment house focused on, you know, the way the world is going to work. And one of my first projects, it wasn't mine, I was on the team, was to focus on Hong Kong 1997. The year was uh, 1977. So they had a 20-year time horizon. Talk about... uh, how different the world is today. Well, you know, most uh, analysts and portfolio managers have a one-quarter to one-year time horizon, and so that instilled in me that experience at Capital with art, uh, with art, um, you know, a desire to truly understand the way the world is going to work. And um, I fell into investing in innovation at um, Jenison Associates, where I was for 18 years. They gave me an opportunity to be an equity analyst, but I had to find my own stocks, my own universe. 
and the the analysts there were lifers. So it really meant I, I was, and I've said this a few times, but like I was a little dog under the table looking around for scraps, and the scraps were in the form of companies that didn't fit into any quote unquote sector. Uh, so database publishing in the early days, this would be the eighties. Um, this was uh, the early, early uh, precursor in the investment world to to the internet, but nobody wanted it. They didn't understand it. It wasn't publishing. It wasn't technology. Didn't fall neatly into any sector. So it was those sorts of stocks that I had the privilege of of covering. No one wanted them. No one thought they'd amount to very much. And so that's really how I started my career only to find out that database publishing was going to mushroom into this thing called the internet and I got to cover that. So um, I learned very early on when, when people underestimate something or dismiss it as uh, not very interesting or impactful long term, I pay even more attention. So two things jump out at me I got to ask you about. The first is, I mean, what was it like even even uttering the words Austrian economics back in those days? and with the kind of liberal mentality that we seem to have still pervasive on college campuses. I mean, how, how was that even dealt with? I mean, could you even discuss it? Well, uh, I, it was an oasis. Uh, it was an oasis to be involved with art and uh, the professors he brought over from the University of Chicago. Um, but to give you a sense, uh, I, I had also gone to UCLA and switched midstream um, uh, thank goodness, because I did meet art, and uh, I couldn't even hold the Wall Street Journal in uh, my hands without people sneering, and, you know, it was a, a very tough time, actually, and when I, uh, when I moved to New York, it was the early 80s, and art's view of the world, which was, if you cut taxes, you know, the, 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 the economy will boom and revenue generation to the government will be higher than anybody uh, anticipates. Uh, that did not prove out immediately because, of course, the Fed was tightening the screws on double-digit inflation. And so we were thrown into back-to-back -back recessions, and Art and anyone associated with him was derided, saying, what a fraud, what a fraud. Uh, and uh, so, but we stuck to our guns, and of course, the 80s and the 90s were all about doing the right thing from a fiscal policy point of view. Uh, you know, well, it was tax policy, regulation, uh, and monetary policy, you know, t turning the screws uh, against inflation, which had gotten out of control. So, you know, in the early days of my career, um, be quite diplomatic, shall I say. And you know, had to had to stay silent at times. Just uh, when it was clear we needed to get through this transitional period, I never stopped believing that we were right. And of course, the the booming markets that we ended up uh, enjoying in the '80s and the '90s, I think, were really uh, spawned during that time. Yeah, yeah. Hey, so I got to ask you this. I mean, I, I I'm I'm fascinated by a lot of the. The, the kind of um, sector calls you've been making because I'm, I'm a, uh, a proponent of what I like to call exponential technologies. And my, my feeling has always been that, that people 
struggle with this idea of exponentially growing technologies because we tend to think linearly as people. Um, but when I look at some of the calls you've made, you seem to have a knack for that. And I'm wondering, you mentioned, you know, being kind of thrust into this database or internet publishing model um, at, a, at, a, at a young age in your career. How did you kind of get a feel for understanding the difference between what I would call linear versus exponential technology and the role that they're going to play um, in the markets? Yeah, it's been very an interesting journey. Um, and I think that that description is terrific in terms of understanding what we do as well. Uh, we are looking for exponential growth. And you're asking, how did I get a sense that uh, the world was going to move from more of a linear growth trajectory into more of an exponential growth mode? Certainly, uh, those areas of the market or the, yeah, the, the economy that we're going to enjoy technological change. And I think that's every sector now. But in the early days of exponential growth, just that concept within the public equity market, First of all, nobody really talked about it until the internet bubble, and then then all you heard about was exponential. But but it was uh, uh, it was not very healthy for the markets because um, what happened was there was just all of the seeds for what we're doing right now in innovation. They were planted, you know, in the 80s and 90s, and they're they're uh, you know they're starting to blossom now. But the the, the dream uh, associated with them caught hold during the late 90s. And there was just too much capital chasing too few opportunities too soon. It ended in tears. So this idea of exponential growth, uh, again, became derided, you know, was derided in the marketplace. Um, we uh, uh, are informed by economic history. And if you look at the last time we've had uh, such pervasive uh, innovation and innovation platforms evolving at the same time, you have to go back to the, the 50 years ended in the roaring 20s, the 1920s. Uh, so telephone, electricity, and internal combustion engines, they were changing the way the world worked. They were associated with exponential growth back then. Uh, and uh, uh, people, and I think investors back then, uh, I know there was not nearly as much as is formalized now, investors back then understood how abruptly uh, the world could change and, you know, disruption could cause, uh, you know, superior growth in um, some areas of the economy while destroying others. So we're in such a time period again. And as we have uh, been very tech-focused over all my years, I've always had a technological bias in, in, my, uh, in, in, in my focus in investing, and as, as we've uh, studied this, of course, Moore's Law was the first attempt to understand and, and capture, you know, what exponential growth was all about. But uh, we've learned now that Moore's Law is hitting a bit of a wall here. Uh, you can tell from Intel, Intel struggles. Uh, we, we started ca casting around for a, a, another law that would encompass all technology technological innovation, and that is Wright's Law. Wright's Law says for every cumulative doubling in your that will decline at a consistent rate. And as costs decline and the prices are passed down, uh, they unleash waves of demand. 
And that's how you get to your exponential growth. You also uh, ha have to figure out from a timing point of view, are we ready for prime time? So we have to ask the question, for every percentage point decline in price, how much will demand increase? Are we ready for prime time? And we think we're ready for prime time now in the five innovation platforms uh, uh, around which we base all of our research compared to the late 90s where we were no way ready for prime time in any of this. And so I think that the waves of the exponential growth that are going to be set off by these technologies are going to astound people. They're going to astound because the linear growth that we've seen, that kind of mindset, has been born out of the last hundred years where we didn't have multiple innovation platforms evolving at the same time. And maybe technology with Moore's Law was one place where you could see some semblance of exponential growth. But now we're going to see it everywhere. And it's also going to be very destructive. So, you know, being on the right side of change during these um, uh, movements of exponential growth in various parts of the economy is going to be really important. So, so I want to talk, uh, th that's incredible. I, I just, there's like seven things I want to talk about based on what you just said. So, so let's leave aside blockchain and crypto because we're going to talk ex explicitly about that. Um, but of the, of the five, um, I think it's uh, genomes and robotics, AI, uh, energy and blockchain, if I remember correctly. Um, let's take, let's pick one. Let's pick, um, let's pick AI. When, when you think about like how we're going to go from where we are to exponential impact of AI over the next five years, how does, how do you and Art think about that? Uh, and how does it impact our investment thesis? Sure. So artificial intelligence really was born in the fifties and sixties, uh, and uh, many people thought it was going to revolutionize the world by the end of the 60s. I was listening to a, a, a history of um, artificial intelligence the other day. and I found that interesting. Um, I didn't remember it. But uh, the reason it, it was great for science fiction and certainly for the imagination. Uh, but the reason it was not ready for prime time is there was just too much human involvement, uh, meaning human programmers. Human programmers cannot, let's just take the case of autonomous vehicles, which are artificial intelligence projects. Human programmers cannot conceive of every possible corner case uh, that an autonomous vehicle will face. And so uh, we, by taking the human programmer out and then just unleashing big data, iterative algorithms, supercomputing power, and, and having the human being set the objective, that's the primary role, uh, hopefully a good objective in this case, getting from point A to point B as safely and quickly as possible. Just those three, the data, big data, the algorithm, supercomputing power, will iterate to the right answer. The machine will teach itself. Uh, and I know human beings find this very difficult to accept that a human being might have been an impediment to this, but it is true. And so now we are ready for prime time and deep learning, the subset of AI that really this is all about, is proliferating um, uh, exponentially, I will say already. I mean, just one example in terms of the public markets, Salesforce.com has run with this concept and launched uh, Einstein, which is AI as a service. And um, this is maybe a 
two years ago they launched it. Uh, today, after just two years, they're making 8.6 billion predictions per day. Um, kind of astonishing, but it makes sense because Salesforce's part of its business is, is focused on salespeople. It's broadened well beyond that, but we know salespeople will use any new technology to increase the probability of success in their marketplace. Uh, and so they've embraced it. So uh, we're already seeing this. I really do believe that um, that AI deep learning is going to be impactful, will impact every line item of the income statement, and that any manager not looking for ways to harness it will lose competitively. So I think we are in the arms race now. Yeah. yeah. And when, when you think about like getting back to the whole investment thesis, how do you translate that into um, your your long term investment plays? I mean, if I think about anywhere from two to five years, um, how does what you just said translate into where you're actually putting putting financial bets or structuring ETFs? Yeah, it's really interesting. Uh, uh, to, to get that question and to reflect on, you know, what is the screen for our portfolios? It is not an index. We do not, we think indexes are where they are because of what has happened historically and we're all about the future. So our screen is our research. How do we construct using white sheet of paper? How do we construct an autonomous vehicle? Oh my goodness, uh, one of the, or the brains of this autonomous vehicle will be GPUs. When we learned of that in 2015, the year we started the firm, uh, I remember uh, NVIDIA was just being uh, thrown out of portfolios because it was nothing but a PC proxy, a PC gaming chip company. And here, our analyst is coming in and telling me and us in our brainstorm uh, that GPUs are going to have an exalted role in this, um, in this artificial intelligence uh, platform. And so we start sizing the opportunity for the artificial intelligence uh, market just for autonomous uh, vehicles. And we came up with something like $25 billion uh, total available market in, you know, 10, 15 plus years. Uh, and NVIDIA, NVIDIA's revenues at the time, I think, were um, not even 3 billion revenues. And uh, autonomous vehicles are only one uh, use case for artificial intelligence. So we just are constantly trying to size markets and say, well, you know, does the does the traditional world understand what uh, what a call option this company has on something that's going to revolutionize our, our economy and our world? And nobody nobody was talking about AI or autonomous at the time. By last year. And so we were buying the stock back then regularly at roughly $15. Last year, uh, 2018, um, it seems as though portfolio managers and analysts needed to check a box saying that they too were uh, following the autonomous and AI opportunity. NVIDIA got that check and it went to a crazy number. It went to $300 from 15. So that's a 20 fold increase in, you know, that actually was in two and a half years. Uh, just because there's this sudden recognition that, whoa, the world is changing in a way. It's not, we're not set up to do this, but I need some kind of participation. I'll just choose the, you know, the, the poster child. So we're trying to do more than choose, 
the poster children for anything. We are, as we are doing our research, we are deepening our knowledge of the companies that are going to make this world happen. Uh, it's our, it's our only focus. I think it's a huge competitive advantage. I'm so grateful. I, I do not care what's happening to General Mills or, you know, uh, or Exxon or, you know, most of the mature companies out there. Our sole focus, I think, is one of our strengths. And I think the other strength is our use of social media and really uh, pushing our research out, sharing our research with uh, the communities that are innovating and hoping to become a part of those communities. I think that's another huge competitive advantage we have because most traditional asset managers, I would say all traditional asset managers that we know of today will not allow their portfolio managers and analysts to say anything about their investing on social media. So in the sharing economy, if you don't give, you don't get. We have developed incredible relationships because of our use of social media. Well, I didn't even I didn't know that they that they were simply forbidden from from doing that. I mean, I think that's crazy in 2019. So before we get into Bitcoin, crypto, blockchain, well, I think the regulation in our industry is such, and especially after 08 and 09, nobody trusting the industry anymore. Um, you know, the regulators have tightened the screws, and uh, I think that a, a risk aversion from a business point of view has taken over the industry. We hired uh, a chief compliance officer, an attorney, who spent four years at the SEC and was there when they were evolving standards for social media and marketing. He's young. He uses social media. He's not afraid of it. And I, and I think everyone's going to have to move in this direction. I think... The, the, the social networks out there, and surprisingly, Twitter being the most interesting, I never would have dreamed that would have been, uh, that we, we would have had the best engagement on Twitter compared to any other platform. But, uh, you know, just think about it. In 2012, when I conceived of this ecosystem, uh, Twitter was for tweens, teens, and celebrities, and I didn't think that would be the most productive platform. And there's a lot of bad behavior on the platform, but you can filter it out. And it's just become a very interesting place to, to live in these communities. Yeah, that's fascinating. So I think I get the impression, first of all, I think you've gotten a lot of our, our audience really excited by some of the comments you've made because there's a lot of overlap in the technology that, um, or, or the technologies that our user base is interested in and the technologies that you're covering. Uh, and, and so... I want to take a step back because a lot of our audience is in places like uh, Southeast Asia, Philippines, uh, Indonesia, uh, Latin America, Mexico, Central America, where they're going to be very new to investing in general. Um, some people are using Abra uh, to invest in stocks for the first time uh, in their lives in these international markets. And so, so when I travel to places like the Philippines, I'm actually explaining to people for the first time what an ETF is what an, uh, an exchange traded fund is and why, why it's important for an investor to understand. I would love for you to, to give your perspective on, on how, what, what an ETF is um, and why it's important for the average investor. And then I would love, love to talk a little bit about some of the ARC um, invest ETFs. Sure. Uh, so uh, ETFs, uh, it's interesting. I started the firm uh, focused on active equity ETFs that are fully transparent. 
And this was considered somewhat disruptive in our industry because active managers don't like to disclose their holdings at the end of every day. Uh, we are quite happy to uh, disclose our holdings at the end of every day. And our client base uh, really loves being that involved in the portfolio. They can choose to be involved or not be involved, but they can see at the end of every day how our positions have changed. Uh, and we also, uh, unlike most uh, ETF providers, once we have made our trades in the ETFs, we will post them so that uh, our investors will understand what we what moves we've made, and uh, we also uh, will at the end at, at every Friday we if there's any stock in the portfolio that has gone up 15% or down 15% in any day, we will write it up saying, hey, here's what happened. Here's our view on it, and you know we're long-term and focused. Typically, the reason that stocks go down dramatically in any one day is for some very short-term reason, um, uh, having to do with short-term earnings. And our focus is on long-term earnings, and we want to keep people focused on long-term earnings because these opportunities are are so amazing. But that's not the ETF world we live in. The ETF world we live in is passive. So there, uh, I would say, in the equity space. 99.5% of all ETFs out there are passive, meaning uh, they're investing in uh, indexes that have been developed over the years based on a company's success uh, and momentum. Uh, and we are looking at that saying, okay, tried and true is one way of looking at the world. In our view, it's going to become a less productive way of looking at the world because the world's about to change in such dramatic ways. And these indexes are going to fill up uh, over time with value traps. Uh, you know, tried and true doesn't mean um, a company cannot be disrupted. Anyway, the way, reason we chose the ETF wrapper is the transparency. We know that our clients want transparency. Liquidity, the ability to trade uh, during hours, uh, during market hours, all day long instead of mutual funds just once uh, at the end of the day. Um, tax effectiveness, uh, which may not be as relevant to, to your community, uh, Bill, but uh, is very relevant to ours. Um, uh, there are tax benefits in ETFs relative to, um, uh, relative to mutual funds. Uh, and so, so uh, we, we love the fact that we can package innovation for our clients within one fund in this very efficient wrapper. It's, all it is is a, a, a wrapper, another way of doing things. Um, but it's just better, and it's also cheaper. It's cheaper than mutual funds. If you look at the, if you look at the pricing of mutual funds, what many people see just uh, just uh, at a glance is their expense ratios. Uh, but that's, those, there are many, many more fees loaded into mutual funds than just the expense ratios. Whereas with ARC, the, the fee that you see is the entire fee. So ours is 75 basis points, 0.75% for most of our funds. If you go into the mutual fund, you'll see their expense ratios might be around 75 basis points or 0.75. But when you add in all of the other layers of fees that are hidden, you get up to one and a half to two percent of fees. And you know, in many of these indexes, they're 
they're lucky to they're going to be lucky to grow at five to seven percent. And if you got if you have fees up to two percent, that's taking a huge chunk away from the end investor. So we we I, we we also do use other wrappers mostly because of what our clients are demanding. But our starting was the ETF just so that we could get uh, a very efficient exposure to innovation in one place. Did you know you could get $25 in Bitcoin just for signing up and creating an Abra wallet? Abra makes investing in cryptocurrencies and other digital assets super easy. Try it today and learn more at abra.com slash goabra. Terms and conditions apply. So I noticed that um, you know, you've know you got a, a, a big position in Tesla as part of the ARK-K. Tesla is a, a, a particularly interesting um, stock for a lot of uh, our international uh, Abra users. Um, where does Tesla fit in, in your opinion, uh, in this not not only uh, ETF model, but in your broader uh, model for exponentially growing technologies? Yes, Tesla is a beautiful uh, case here. It's an illustration of why the traditional financial world uh, and especially going to have to restructure in, in, in order to understand some of the, uh, you know, I'm going to use a, a common expression, but mind-blowing, uh, mind-blowing opportunities there are out there in innovation. The reason the traditional world is having a problem with this stock is the typical analyst covering it is an auto analyst. Auto analysts have not seen exponential growth in their lifetimes. In fact, you'd have to be more than 100 years old to, to see uh, the last time ex, uh, uh, the auto industry enjoyed exponential growth. And uh, here we are. We've got a, a, an analyst uh, group following a, an, a mature industry that is actually going to be disrupted mightily by electric vehicles generally, and Tesla in particularly, in particular, as uh, we move towards autonomous taxi networks. Now, in order to really understand Tesla, you have to understand robotics because autonomous vehicles are robots. Uh, you have to understand energy storage, battery technology, because that is the cost that is declining at such a rate that the average electric vehicle price will drop below that of the average gas-powered uh, vehicle uh, in two years, we believe, and will continue to fall so that by 2025, the average gas-powered uh, price in U.S. dollars uh, will be still roughly around 25000 and the average electric vehicle price will be 15000 So from a, a cost point of view, price point of view, there'll be you know, it'll be a no-brainer. Is that price without government subsidies at that point or tax subsidies? Yes. Wow. Now, here is probably the most uh, important differentiator for ARC relative to others looking at Tesla. We're using Wright's Law in the electric vehicle space. Wright's Law is uh, telling us that the number of electric vehicle sales units will go from roughly 1.5 million last year to 26 million in 2023. Now, most forecasting agencies have it in the four to five million units 
uh, at that point. Uh, the same forecasting agencies five years ago when we started doing our work on electric vehicles had, um, had uh, 2023, their expectation for 2023 was fewer than 500,000 units. Last year alone, uh, you know, which was uh, four years, uh, five years before, uh, last year we we're at 1.5. So they, 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 the reason these forecasting agencies are making mistakes is because they've got a linear uh, model in terms of their thought process because they are funded by or focused on the mature auto industry. Well, this is a break from that, a complete break. And so they have increased their estimates by more than, well, roughly tenfold in the last five years. We haven't changed our estimates at all because Wright's law is very predictable. So um, we believe that Tesla has three competitive advantages in this new world. One, they have battery technology, which was built on, on the back of the consumer electronics industry. In the early days of Tesla, auto manufacturers and auto analysts used to just laugh at it because they're saying, oh great, Tesla is building their car on top of cell phone batteries. And there were a lot of articles at the time of cell phone batteries, you know, blowing up in airplanes and so forth. And so, you know, the, the Tesla was uh, denigrated as, you know, a, you know, hopeless in, in terms of its aspirations. Uh, instead, Elon Musk ha has, his engineering feat is the battery pack system cost, which is, we think, uh, three years ahead of any other auto uh, manufacturer. So whether you're talking about, you know, Mercedes or BMW, uh, uh, they are going, if they want to keep up with Tesla's pricing, they are going to have to sell every electric vehicle at uh, a loss, as they are all also in the process of losing their internal combustion engine-based business. So it's going to be a nightmare for them. Uh, but the, one of the questions we get the most is, oh, these other companies with their R&D budgets are going to kill Tesla. Well, guess what? Those R&D budgets are all based on the old world, uh, not on the new world. It is interesting to see uh, some of them starting to become very decisive. Dave Daimler just came out last week saying we're going to stop investing in the internal combustion engine. I think uh, the aha moment is near. The second competitive advantage that Tesla has in terms of autonomous vehicles is its artificial intelligence chip. So it's taking a leap from Apple's book here. So if you'll remember in the uh, early days of the smartphone, Apple was running away with that market. Uh, but the traditional chip manufacturers couldn't keep up with them, so they designed their own chip. And, of course, uh, and, and you know, Nokia, Ericsson, Motorola did not die, design their own chip. And we see who's the winner in this space now. Uh, we think the same is true with uh, Tesla. Uh, our analyst, James Wang, who spent nine years at NVIDIA, looked at Tesla's specs late last year and said, you know, was my, again, Another mind-blowing moment, he said, this chip is four years ahead of anything that NVIDIA is going to be able to put into uh, auto manufacturers' uh, um, ecosystems. Uh, and that's because the cadence of the auto industry is so slow. So we think their chip technology is going to, has put them in the pole position for autonomous. And another competitive advantage on that front is the 10 to 12 billion miles worth of data. Remember, 
autonomous vehicles are an artificial intelligence project and that big data unleashing it is going to be the most competitive uh, uh, advantage along with the chip. Uh, just to give you a comparison, Google's Waymo has 15 million miles of real world data. They might have billions of miles of simulated data, but real world is the only thing that's going to count. Uh, and Tesla has that. No one else is close. Uh, so, Do you see Tesla long-term as a chip and battery maker or as a car maker? Uh, we think it's all of the above. We think it's, uh, if we were to summarize where its valuation is going to come from, in other words, what is going to make this stock move long run, it is going to be their autonomous vehicle uh, taxi platform. Uh, and the reason for that is, it will be that will be moving it from a hardware centric low gross margin business so gross margins in the 25 to 30% range to a software as a service transportation as a service um, uh, high gross margin model so those gross margins just for that autonomous service will be in the 80 plus percent range most analysts can't conceive of this out of an auto manufacturer right now that's why there's such an important uh, call option in this stock. It is not being priced in the market at all, at all. Uh, and, and, you know, it's amusing to me that Tesla is selling at two times sales, and that includes all of its debt. So enterprise value to sales is two times. And software as a service uh, companies out there go from any, anywhere from five to 30 times uh, sales. So you can tell Tesla, Tesla is, it doesn't even have uh, a price and sales ratio in line with the NASDAQ. So the NASDAQ is somewhere in the three to three and a half percent range. So you can see why we're all over Tesla and why it's the largest position in our portfolio. How do you, how do you go from market cycling and thesis around the transition from one technology to another to execution risk? Because, I mean, because for me, um, it's very obvious that the world needs uh, to eliminate the driver. Uh, it needs artificial intelligence to solve problems that humans are incapable of solving uh, at the same speed. But then you still have to pick the winners, right? I mean, um, a lot of people, I think, would be fearful that everything you're saying makes sense. But at the same time, a company like Tesla may not be the one to, to ultimately um, executes uh, in in in, the, in another ten year time frame, for example, is that is that the way to think about it? Sure. So our conviction in Tesla has increased as our research has uh, has advanced, and, and and it is around battery, chip, and data. Uh, there's no one close. So what would uh, disrupt Tesla? Okay, maybe if there's some big breakthrough in solid state batteries, which again, we're all over it, we're looking for it, we, we wanna look for what's going to disrupt our disruptors, uh, and, and we're nowhere close on that. Um, I guess the other thing that could disrupt Tesla is, is, if, um, is, if, an art, is if some larger company other than the auto manufacturers uh, were to say, okay, this is a strategic, let's say a software as a service provider. Let's say Apple. Let's say Apple has jumped in. And, you know, Tesla is taking a leap from Apple's book. So we're, we know they're working on autonomous. Uh, they've had some 
struggle sits and starts. We're not seeing a lot. It seems like they want to be more on the software side than the hardware side. But if Apple came out with something, uh, maybe uh, uh, in conjunction with another, like a, 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 a branded auto manufacturer like Mercedes or something, uh, Volkswagens, one of Volkswagens, let's say Audi, um, that could present a, a competitive challenge for sure. Uh, however, the, the bigger question right now is getting from the internal combustion engine to electric. And Tesla is ahead of everyone on that in terms of its cost structure and in terms of its uh, the three uh, uh, competitive moats that we've seen it establish. It would be awfully hard to knock them off right now. Uh, I think Apple would have to spend a lot of money. There have been rumors that, or not rumors, suggestions that Apple should buy Tesla. I don't think the CEOs, I don't think, I think the only way that would happen is if Elon Musk were made head of Apple, and I doubt that's going to happen. So um, we keep, we do keep looking behind our backs because as students of disruptive innovation, we know that the biggest risk is uh, another uh, technology disruption. Another risk is uh, regulatory. Um, so it's been interesting to watch U.S. regulators embrace autonomous because they've seen the number of deaths uh, uh, in, on U.S. highways has turned up after many, many years of falling. And the reason it's turned up is because of texting and the deaths are uh, disproportionately now at the margin, young people. So, you know, regulators are all over trying to solve that problem. Uh, so regulation used to be one of our concerns, but it isn't any longer. So, so th I could talk about Tesla and picking uh, exponential winners all day. It's one of my favorite topics. Uh, just in the last few minutes we have, I'd love to segue uh, into another one of your uh, favorite topics, which is uh, blockchain, Bitcoin, and crypto. Um, let's start with Bitcoin. Where does Bitcoin fit in for you in, in the kind of modern investment thesis and, and what excites you about Bitcoin in particular? Yes, so we are um, focused uh, primarily right now on the cryptocurrency space. We do think, you've heard about FAT protocol, the FAT, uh, Joel Monegro's FAT protocol um, thesis, and, and we would tend to agree with it that unlike the internet where, you know, the protocols, uh, did not derive the economic value in the marketplace. Uh, you know, they were just standards, they're free. Um, we think that the value of blockchain technologies is going to be uh, reflected in the cryptocurrencies. And certainly we're focused on Bitcoin because uh, with Art Laffer, our first white paper was, can, can a cryptocurrency like Bitcoin serve the three roles of money? And um, we concluded, we have the white paper up on our, uh, on our website at arc-invest. Uh, we've concluded that yes, it can. I remember uh, talking to Art in the early days of writing that paper. Christopher Nisky, uh, whom you probably know, he was the author of the paper and, uh, and Art collaborated with us. And um, Art said, you know, I love this Bitcoin thing. It's a rules-based monetary policy, and that's what we're missing in the world today. He said, I don't agree with the rule, uh, 
uh, if we're talking about means of exchange, uh, but the rule in terms of store of value, and especially store of value, is, is excellent. You know, the 25 million uh, limit and so forth. Um, he would prefer a price rule, and we're seeing that uh, with stable coins to some extent, interested in Decred uh, for, you know, the toggling back and forth that it might be able to do between price rule and quantity rule. So, but I remember asking Art when we were doing this paper, and as we were, you know, peeling the onion and getting to learn more about uh, this technology and this cryptocurrency, um, I remember saying to Art, Art, how big could this be? And he, uh, he said to me, well, how, how big is the monetary base, the U.S. monetary base? That's the reserve currency. How big is that? And at the time, it was $4.5 trillion. And I, I looked at him, and, and, you know, that's when, that's when I took my personal position. That's when, and I should say first, I took my personal position because I wanted to be the guinea pig uh, for GBTC. Um, and once we felt comfortable with that ecosystem and got to understand more about it in September of 15, we were the first public asset managers to add uh, exposure to Bitcoin to our ETFs. And uh, so it was 250 and we wrote it to $20,000. had no idea it would happen that quickly, but knew very early on that we were talking about something very big here. And, and that's just one use case. Um, you know, we're, we're struck with the use cases, and I love what you're doing. I absolutely love it, including this idea of fractional shares. I know you can't do this in the U.S. right now, but that is the big problem for ETFs when it comes to retirement accounts. Uh, ETFs can't be broken into fractional, fractional units. So what you're doing is very provocative, uh, the rest of the world is getting exposure to it first, and I hope uh, your technology is accepted here in the United States as well uh, for retirement accounts because it could unlock for the ETF market a whole new world. So, so could you unpack that for us for a second? So when you talk about retirement accounts and fractional shares, is it simply that people want to put smaller amounts of money to work and spread that money around, or, or is there some other, some other issue? Yes, it is that, and you know, uh, out of uh, a person's paycheck each week, I mean, or two, every two weeks here in the U.S. for the most part, uh, maybe they'll come a hundred dollars. Um, and if they've got an a asset allocation set up um, in in their retirement accounts uh, that wouldn't allow them to buy a full share of any of our uh, funds, we couldn't offer them anything. Uh, and we're not allowed, uh, you know, we, you'll, you'll not see ETFs on retirement platforms. But that's, in terms of our ETFs with their, you know, long-term time horizon, this idea of young people, um, you know, harnessing their re retirement accounts to some of these exponential growth opportunities, that's exactly where we should be. So, again, what you're doing, I know that just by its nature, Bitcoin is probably attracted and crypto generally attracted to millennials and, and younger people uh, with, and who are willing to take a long-term focus and are willing to think about Tesla in terms of autonomous in a way that the traditional world isn't even, you know, won't consider right now because it's not within the next quarter or next year. 
so I think you're doing a great service. Thank you for that. Um, thank you. We agree. So when you when people ask you where where does Bitcoin fit in for you for the average investor today, um, for, for every thousand dollars, you know what or hundred dollars, what do you recommend? Do you tell people is, does it is it is it is it a risk tolerance issue? Should everyone have exposure to Bitcoin? Do you have a standard answer? I we believe that Bitcoin is the reserve currency of the crypto asset ecosystem, and that its value the the, the value of anything like we know from the dollar, uh, this is an exalted position to be the the reserve currency of the crypto asset ecosystem, and we know this was proved out as the. Uh, Price of uh, crypto or uh, Bitcoin went from roughly twenty thousand down to three. Its share, what some people call dominance, and I know there are problems with that metric, but its share of the crypto asset network value out there. Some people might think of that in the financial world as market cap, but this is really network value. Um, moved from the low thirty percent range to the low seventy percent range. You know, with a flight to safety um, beneficiary. And um, so, so we think that, that this downturn that we saw battle-tested uh, Bitcoin. In terms of exposure, yes, um, a new asset class uh, with uh, very low correlation in terms of relative returns uh, compared to other assets like uh, equities, bonds, gold, and so forth. Um, it deserves a position in a portfolio because it can further diversify a portfolio and if you have a long-term perspective, we think it's one of the biggest uh, long-run opportunities uh, from an investment point of view out there. Now, uh, I'm going to explain uh, this in a couple of ways. You will see in our ETFs, we've had to dial down our exposure. We never dreamed that it would hit 10%. And, we, and, and, and that forks weren't going to be allowed to be contained within these trusts. And so it created something called an unqualified income problem for us, where if we have more than 10% of our gross profits in unqualified income, uh, unqualified includes commodities, and, and the SEC was uh, uh, considering uh, Bitcoin a commodity, uh, then the IRS just takes all the profits, any more than 10%. So as a fiduciary, we had to dial it down. In our discretionary accounts, uh, Bitcoin accounts for roughly 6% of those portfolios, in my personal account, uh, it's more than 10% uh, of my uh, of my financial net worth, um, and uh, it's maybe 15% of my financial net worth. And I have not sold any since we first took our positions in um, in in 2015. That that's from a personal point of view. We had to sell uh, because of this uh, tax issue in in the ETF. Wow. That's incredible. And and so do you think that um, these tax issues will persist or do you think that there's something that the, will eventually be done to address that? Or is it just because of the way it's viewed as a commodity that's going to be the, the way it is forever? Well, uh, I think we saw that um, Van Eck pulled out, uh, pulled its um, uh, bidding in uh, for to become a uh, Bitcoin ETF. Uh, away and has started a different kind of fund. That spoke volumes to us uh, in, in the U.S. about where the SEC is, probably not anytime soon. I mean, and, and we, take, we agree with that point of view, and 
uh, we're going to be launching our own private fund. It'll be for accredited investors, but you know, we, we, we want, we, we feel this is such an important uh, asset class that we want to make sure we have a vehicle out there in any way that we can that can enable uh, our investors to, to buy Bitcoin. Now, this will be for higher end income just because that's all the regulators will allow now, unfortunately. But to the extent, uh, you know, those who uh, don't have a million dollars per year in income or whatever the accreditation is, or a million dollars in financial net worth, but want to get gain exposure to Bitcoin. Thank goodness, including through you, there are ways to do yep. this. Yeah. So I've been making the case for years that at some point in the near future, significant amounts of institutional money are likely to come in to this asset class. At which point, Bitcoin explodes, and 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 maybe some of the altcoins um, that that kind of trail Bitcoin are likely to follow suits. How do you view that as, and you mentioned the reserve asset class, is that implied in, in what you're saying? Yes, so our fund is going to be focused just on cryptocurrencies and we think there will be maybe, it'll be a little bit like the setup, the dollar, euro, yen, uh, British pound, I guess Libra is going to back, uh, uh, going to be backed by the Singapore dollar as well. Um, we think there will be three or four primary cryptocurrencies. It's a, you know, it's a network effect market. Uh, uh, it's a viral, has a viral, uh, um, aspect to it. So that's only, that's, that's, there are only going to be a few currencies, we think. And so our fund is focused primarily on that. In terms of, uh, DeFi and just how our, the financial world is going to change, you know, they, the financial infrastructure and so forth. Uh, we think there are huge opportunities as well there. We we are not going after that market. We think that there are venture capital firms like uh, Placeholder, Chris Bernicke went to Placeholder, uh, uh, that are focused DeFi. So we think that's going to be a very important use case. Uh, but our, we've chosen to focus. It's probably what we should, should do because we're not covering all of crypto. We are picking our spots and where we can add the most value. Sure. What, so I guess this is, I could talk to you all day. This has been awesome. My last question, I guess, is are we headed to a recession? And what happens to, to Bitcoin and the crypto markets if, if we go into a recession? Yeah, what's very interesting is uh, now that the yield curve has inverted, so the yield curve inversion is, simply long rates dropping below short rates. Uh, and today the 10-year treasury here in the United States is about, I think it's about 10 or 15 basis points, so 0.15% below um, short-term rates. Every time that has happened in post-World War II experience, the economy has been in a recession uh, within a year to a year and a half. And to have said it during any of those times, this time is different, would have been a mistake. Now, we are saying this time is different. And the reason we're doing that is we can be supported in this point of view by our analysis of the 50 years that ended in the roaring 20s and that had these massive innovation platforms transforming the existing world order. So electricity, telephone, internal combustion engines. 
Back then, the yield curve was inverted more than 50% of the time with the steepest inversion, meaning the, the long rate was five percentage points below the short rate. That occurred during periods of the strongest growth in economic activity. And what was going on back then makes sense to us from an exponential growth point of view. Short rates were responding to some of the very strong growth dynamics in the uh, economy as these exponential growth trends were taking off. Uh, while long rates were focused on the deflationary nature of technology, um, it's law that for every cumulative doubling in units produced, costs drop by a consistent amount. Uh, and so uh, long rates are more influenced by inflation, so they, they did not go up as much as short rates did. So we're in an environment where it seems like interest rates are still coming down. The U.S. Uh, was leading on the upside and has reversed very recently. We think that, uh, that that will come to an end and that interest rates probably are going to move back up again, led by the United States, uh, because we don't think we're going to have a recession. And in fact, what we see going on right now is businesses are extremely concerned. They're very cautious here in the United States and they pull back on capital spending. They're cutting inventories. But we're not seeing consumers stopping and employment growth. Employment growth is very strong. Wage growth is very strong. So what must be happening is inventory liquidation. That's the setup for a cyclical rebound. So we would not be surprised to see within the next year growth much stronger than expected. And in this world, I think we, you see a little bit of a flight to safety that Bitcoin, with all the flashpoints around the world, whether it's Argentina now or Hong Kong, um, I do think uh, some of that was uh, behind Bitcoin's increase. Uh, so Bitcoin will benefit from uncertainty and especially from any uncertainty having to do with the financial system. So Argentina, you know, inflation's back up to 50%. Hong Kong, there's, you know, all the fears about China. Uh, so I think that the world we in, we're in will benefit. And, you know, anytime there is confiscation of wealth, and inflation is confiscation of wealth by the monetary authorities uh, for the benefit of debt holders, um, we, we, um, we think everyone should have a hedge against that, uh, certainly with all the reserves and the central banking system just waiting there being kindling for, for you know, an igniting of loan growth uh, and so forth. So we think this should be an insurance policy, and it's an insurance policy against confiscation of wealth in another way. Um, if you think about uh, Saudi Arabia, I'll bet the princes never believed that their own relative would take their wealth away from them. It would have been uh, very good, a nice diversification to have had some of their wealth locked up uh, in, in crypto assets. So I think confiscation, we've done a study, if you assume high net worth, the highest net worth individuals around the world, uh, and I think it's, you know, I'm going to say it's the top 1% around the world, if you were to assume that they were going to take out a 5% insurance policy, meaning uh, in their lifetimes, there's a 5% chance that their wealth will be confiscated by anti-capitalists or, you know, political coercion, um, 
then uh, that market alone, if you if they were to take that five percent insurance policy out in Bitcoin, that would be a two point five trillion dollar opportunity wow. just there. Wow, I think I heard a, a venture capitalist refer to it as uh, the world's best schmuck insurance. I'm not sure I would would have put it exactly that way, but uh, you know, it certainly certainly resonates with the point you're making. So, so look, this has been um, absolutely amazing. I, I can't wait for um, our audience uh, to to get access to this. I would love to have you back and just dig in on on, on Bitcoin uh, in much more detail. Uh, but I think we're at about the hour mark, and it's gone. The time has absolutely flown by. So, I want to thank you so much for for your time. Uh, you've been very generous. And uh, on behalf of my audience, thank you very, very much. Oh, well, thank you for what you are doing. Um, and uh, thank you for giving us this opportunity to, to share with your audience. Absolutely. My pleasure. So that, uh, that wraps it up for another episode of Money 3.0. Thank you so much uh, to Kathy and, and the ARC team. And um, yeah, uh, see you all soon. Thanks again for listening to the Abra Money 3.0 show. We hope you liked this episode as much as we did. If so, please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts and download the Abra app wherever you get your apps. Thanks again.